Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hey, it's Anna. And before we get to the episode, I want to say hello to any of you who might be new to Death, Sex, and Money and encourage you to check out our Death, Sex, and Money starter kit. It includes some of our all-time favorite episodes from the last six years of the show, intimate conversations with celebrities and listeners about money, relationships, infidelity, grief, mental health, and a lot more. You can find that at deathsexmoney.org slash starter kit. Thanks for listening. We're glad you're here. There's going to be hardship in life, and uh, no matter what. And so... The best thing to do is be prepared for that. And and I was brought up that when the, when the hardship comes, get working on it immediately. This is Death, Sex, and Money. All this death, you don't think that ripples out? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. I always meet my private clients here. It's more comfortable than the office. And need to talk about more. Go shake your ass and make some money. I'm Anna Sale. For the past few years, Wendell Pierce's work as an actor has taken him all over the world. I was in Montreal. I was in Morocco. I was in Colombia. I was in London and Paris and Moscow. Wendell was shooting scenes for the Amazon series Jack Ryan, filming the movie Clemency, and for three months last fall, playing Willie Loman in London's West End staging of Death of a Salesman. But when acting work stalled back in March, Wendell, who's now 56, decided to hunker down in his hometown of New Orleans. Eating seafood on the lakefront in New Orleans uh, in the summertime uh, has been a treasure. And I've been able to do that with my father and uh, have some crawfish and, or crabs. It's been great, you know. Huh. I'm appreciating this summer even more because... You know, it's all the things you did for some of that you took for granted. I would just hop on a plane. I would be on a Caribbean beach right now, or you know, and I realized that uh, if I can't get to a beach, I'm going to be like a kid, and you're going to see me, Wendell Pierce, running around with his garden hose <laughs> <laughs> and swim trunks uh, on the back lawn. And I want to be able to picture this. Like, what color are your swim trunks this season? Oh, I try to be cool, you know. <laughs> Big dude like me, they tried to look slick, right? So I got some, like, tight little boy short sort of swim trunks. I hope uh, they're red. No, they're black. You know, you got to think slimming. (laughs) 
Wendell's house is in the Pontchartrain Park neighborhood of New Orleans, just two blocks from his childhood home. His dad still lives there. He's 95 years old and has around-the-clock care, but Wendell's been seeing him every day. I said, this is... I'm going to look on the bright side and say this is an opportunity to spend this time with my dad. Hmm. And what do you find... What's When you think about this time with your dad and think about what's been special about what you've been able to do together, is there something that comes to mind, a moment that wouldn't have happened otherwise? It's one of those times where you know every day I kind of go, he's seen everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I explain to him, he can't hear anything. I explained to him what was going on with the protests. Uh, I was waiting to see what he would say. And he figured it out. He goes, oh, that's what's happening. Well, we'll fix this shit. We'll fix this shit. Yeah. Because he had evidence of how to do it, a blueprint of how to do it, and knowledge that what holds us together is stronger than what will be breaking us apart. And that's family and community. Wendell learned early about the importance of both those things, growing up in Pontchartrain Park in the 60s and 70s. As he writes about in his 2015 memoir called The Wind in the Reeds, his parents settled in the neighborhood soon after it was built in the 1950s. It was a subdivision created by and for Black working-class families after redlining kept them out of nearby white neighborhoods. It was separate but equal, something ugly, but we made it beautiful. Um... It felt like uh, a black Mayberry. You get on your bike and you could ride around. And I was, I felt like I had a parent at every other house, you know, and they were like, you know, that's Pierce's boy. <laughs> and uh, I was known as Mrs. Pierce's son because she taught at the school two blocks from my house. And when you were growing up, like you describe it as black Mayberry, were you, did you feel like, finances were tight in your family when you were growing up? Did you feel really stable? You know, it's interesting. Punchatrain Park was seen as like this mecca, you know. People would come and drive through Punchatrain Park. Uh, uh, They actually had buses of white folks who would come through on a tour. This is the first Negro neighborhood in America. Wow. Really? The Negro housewife is putting out the laundry. Ah, the Negro father is cutting the lawn. You know, they brought, uh, of all names, Dixieland tours. To, uh, to view black people acting human. And black folks in the city would come, too. You know, oh, man, oh, you're from Pontchartrain Park. Oh, you think you're, you're bourgeois. Uh-huh. And my parents would always tell me, and I'll never forget, listen, this little house, which is not big enough for any of us, cost $13,000, and I spent all 30 years paying for it. <laughs> you know? So remember that. That detail from your book that, when your parents paid off their house, they hung up the paid-in-full oh, yeah. statement on the wall. Yes, indeed. My father framed that and put it in his little museum, as we called it. <laughs> uh, and uh, he would always point to, the house, point to that. My house is paid for in full. And um, we had a healthy respect for work and understanding that money um, allows you to build a life that you want, uh, you should not have a love for money, but uh, it's important that you uh, you try to build your wealth. And my father, to this day, always says, watch your money. Hmm. Watch your bread. When you walk out the door, watch your money. Hmm. One, 
One detail that you write about in your book that I, I've thought about a lot is you, it must have been when you were still at home before you went away to school when your, when your brother Stacy was having some mental health difficulties. Mm-hmm. And just tell me, how did, your, how did your parents approach that as a family? My parents believed in sharing everything. If something happened, you sat down at the table and they said, we had a, we had a family meeting. And so even as taboo as mental illness was and still can be and uh, in the black community, they said, listen, your brother is going through some issues at school uh, and we got to go and get him because uh, he's having a breakdown. He's having a breakdown. And they brought him home and they said, you know, now, this is the thing you always have to remember. What happens to one of us happens to all of us. So we have to take care of your brother. And I remember at the time, we as a family, now this is, I never even heard of it then. Uh, fam- we went together as a family to therapy to make mm-hmm. sure everybody was on the same page. These are the feelings that you're going to have. You feel, you know, my parents, you may have feel that you failed him. You guys are kids. You may be scared of who he has become or when he goes through an episode or something, don't be. It's natural. Also understand. That's when I first understood as a kid. The doctor was very good. Uh, Explained to me that, you know, in your brain, there's chemicals. And sometimes if you, like in science class, you put the wrong chemical together, you get an explosion. It's just as physical as anything, any other illness. And so uh, family... Uh, is paramount. And in times like that, it was demonstrated. You know, uh, family means everything, um, even as dysfunctional as it may be. Hmm. Uh, I was raised to believe that family is the greatest connection to your past and most likely to be there for you in the future. How old were you when you were going to family therapy? Do you remember? Oh, let me see. I had to be about 10, 11. Hmm. 10 or 11 years old. Yeah. How's a child? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, like, how do you think, you know, your, your brother had left the house. He was no longer li- living at home and that he had mm-hmm. a place to come when he needed help. Like, did that, do you think that made you more brave in thinking about what you might do when you left the house? Oh, uh, bravery was, uh, that was established with my parents right away. I mean, just what they were doing, just living. Uh, we were conscious of, it, it's really, it was an interesting balance. They taught us that there are those who do not have our best interests at heart. We live in the South. This is dangerous. Be on your P's and Q's. Be aware. But don't ever think you can't do anything because can't die three days before the creation of the world. So don't ever tell me you can't do something, right? Which is a mantra in my family. So hand in hand, you know, um, those two principles lived in my family. You can do anything, go anywhere, be whatever you want to be. And at the same time, you have to be prepared. Wendell knew from a young age what he wanted to be. After his two older brothers went off to pursue careers in medicine and in the military, Wendell fell in love with theater. 
As a high school freshman, he was accepted into the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, a performing arts high school where he hung out with other students like Wenton and Branford Marcellus. From there, he was accepted into the theater program at Juilliard. He arrived in New York in the summer of 1981. Everyone was on their stoops. Music was playing. Kids were playing in the streets. A fire hydrant was open, you know. Uh, I was like, man, New York, skyscrapers and everything. Like Stevie Wonder, too. <laughs> I was, oh, man, it was excitement. The other thing is I had uh, I had friends here already, you know, or there. Um, uh, Winton Marcellus was there. Branford would come down on the weekends from Boston. So I went to Juilliard during the day, and then at night I would go and hang out with Winton and Branford and staying, uh, and I got another education at the jazz clubs. What was it like? So you're living with your aunt in Crown Heights, right, in Brooklyn? Yeah, and in so Crown you're, Heights. You're going to jazz clubs, you're exploring New York City, like... Um, was, and then I eventually moved in with Winton and Branford. Oh, know, then that was, was that a party Grand. house? <laughs> the, yeah, party house, you know, young men in New York... <laughs> How did you think about romance at that time of your life? Uh, Romance was uh, just as elusive as being a great artist was, you know. It's something that you had to work on constantly. (laughs) And like any young man, I was chatting up everything that was walking, you know. I I did not realize it then, but they called me the hound of the hallways at Juilliard. (laughs) (laughs) Then uh, in New Orleans, in New Orleans, we say, hey, baby. Right? That's that's a sweet thing, right? It's a it's a term of endearment to everyone. What's up, baby? Men and women. You say it to anybody. And I remember this guy came up to me and said, Hey, listen, man, I just gotta tell you, I'm not homosexual. And I know you keep trying to hit on me. I'm like, keep trying to hit on you. I'm not hitting on you, man. He said, You keep calling me baby. I said, Oh man, that's a new all his name, baby. So, so that was my idea of romance. The hound of the hallway is quite a nickname. <laughs> Because I was being from New Orleans. Hey, baby. How you doing? Hey, baby. And so when you when you think about, like, I guess at that point in your life, when you're 17, 18 years old, and you think about what it was about performing, that just was like, this is the thing. This is why I'm here. What, what was it? I learned early on, it's closer to psychology than anything else. Creating the world so strong that it induces the behavior. Hmm. You don't think about the behavior itself. If someone said, you know, a loved one of yours got hit by a car outside, you wouldn't think about how am I going to get up from this table and run out and uh, look this way and look that way. You would just react because you have a history of of love and a connection to that person. And, And I learned young that it was creating that world that will induce the behavior when it comes to a particular scene. And I appreciated and I loved that part of it. And it made me a student of human behavior. Then I saw an institution that respected that sort of level of study. Hmm. From nine in the morning until 11 o'clock at night, we're going to look at every aspect of your human being and tie that into the work that we were doing. It was that sort of detailed level of examination uh, that I knew that There's nothing, when I left Julia, there's nothing that I will go through in this business that will ever, ever uh, come up to the level of scrutiny that we had at Julia. When you left, it could be debilitating. 
And for me, it was for a little while. The one thing I knew with certainty leaving Juilliard was the fact that I wasn't an actor. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know one thing. I'm not good. Really? Right? You came away feeling been, not good enough. Because because the work had been so intense that, you know, uh, I had a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, insecurity about it, yeah. you know? Um, not a little. It was big. <laughs> it was... And I'll never forget the first year. It took me a year before I, I decided that I was an actor. You know, every time I got a job, I had imposter syndrome. I thought, oh, man, they're going to find out I'm no good. Then I got another job. Oh, the only job, I, the only reason I got that is because that one guy liked me. Everybody else didn't like me. Oh, or then, you know, something else would happen. And then after a year, I said, Wendell, stop. It doesn't matter if they like you or not. You know, go in, do your work. If they choose to work with you, good. If not, go on. And then that was the thing that kind of set me off. Wendell graduated from Juilliard in 1985 and three years later made his Broadway debut. He worked steadily after that. And then in 2001, he was cast in what's become his most famous role as Detective Bunk Moreland on The Wire. Coming up, I talk with Wendell about riding high on the success of The Wire when Hurricane Katrina hit his hometown. To quote Dickens, it's the best of times, it was the worst of times. Uh, it was the best of times, obviously, for my career. And then Katrina happened, and uh, I really saw uh, how fragile our society is. It is very fragile. Talking to Wendell Pierce reminded me of the time that the Death, Sex, and Money team got to spend in New Orleans. We reported from there in the summer of 2015, 10 years after Hurricane Katrina, and talked with a collection of people about what had happened in their lives during the storm and then after, including bounce artist Big Frida, the then coroner of the city, and a partier-turned-professor who was raising her three kids in post-Katrina New Orleans. We also made this version of our show's music for that series, thanks to our colleague Jason Isaac and the Outerboro Brass Band. I've thought back on this series a lot during this time of pandemic, when a really terrible thing is happening to all of us that hits each of our lives in specific and individual ways. If you want to listen back, there's a link to that series in our show notes, or you can find it at deathsexmoney.org slash in New Orleans. And thank you to those of you who have sent in your stories about feeling a rent crunch right now. Like this listener from L.A. who works as a freelance artist. Work has been scarce for him since the pandemic started. So he and his roommate decided to ask their landlord if he'd be open to reducing the rent for the rest of the year. And we were maybe naive into thinking that he would be, that he would be, I don't know, generous or understanding or sympathetic. Um, but that wasn't the case. He said there was nothing he could do. So they paid their rent in full in August, but are planning to talk to their landlord again at the end of the month. I hate to be, like, argumentative or difficult about this because it's not that, like, you know, this guy is some, like, multi-billionaire. And I understand that, like, you know, this is his income. But also, like, it's a global pandemic, dude. Like, have some decency. 
If you're worried about whether you'll be able to make your rent over the next few months, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us how you're dealing with housing instability. Record a voice memo and send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. When Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in the summer of 2005, Wendell Pierce happened to be in town, visiting while on a break from filming The Wire in Baltimore. He and his parents left to stay with family in Baton Rouge and watched from there as their city and neighborhood filled with water. You saw the worst in human nature. You saw many people die. We had uh, insurance companies not recognize anyone's insurance policies like my parents after 50 years of paying them. Then you saw the best of people. You saw people from all walks of life come to help. So every time you would get angered by some ignorant, racist, bigoted murder or police brutality, you saw the kindest most loving, giving people, opening their homes, giving food, transportation, cars, traveling people from to all parts of the country. I had a neighbor come to me with a worried look. When do I never heard of these people? They're going to build a house and everything. They're going to help me with everything I got. But I just, I don't know if I should accept it. I never heard of them. Hmm. I said, who are they? Mennonites. I never heard of no Mennonite. (laughs) I said, oh, no, that's... That's some of the most loving, kindest people in the world. It don't sound like it, Mennonite. <laughs> what the hell is a Mennonite? Never heard of that. I'm Baptist, you know. <laughs> so, how did you how did you think about the sets of decisions that you needed to make about how to be helpful to your parents and your family during that time? I said, you know, we are going to be away from home for a year at least. Uh, prepare accordingly, and so. Uh, that was the, that was the thing that was kind of cultivated in my family. Uh, almost like you're on watch, you're on call, like a fireman and the alarm bell goes off and you go into action. So I bought a house, got furniture, moved my parents in, started commuting between Baltimore and, uh, and Baton Rouge on the weekends just to make sure they were set and done and all of that. And I said, I'm going to get you back in your home in New Orleans. And I had a friend 
called me and said, Wendell, whatever you do, don't let your parents go back alone to Pontchartrain Park. It's going to kill them. Hmm. You have to be there to soften the blow. It's the worst thing you've ever seen. And to go back and to not even recognize the place that you grew up in, I, I imagine what it would be like uh, in a nuclear winter, you know, what it was, you know, after, after a bomb has gone off. So I was there, my parents broke down. It was just an emotional time. And I said, we're going to get you back in this house. Don't worry. You know, and my goal was to get them home before they died. They were in the seventies, eighties. And I said, I'm going to get you home. And you did. And your mother lived for years back in the neighborhood. Um, she died in 2012. Five years back home to, uh, before she passed. So that was about eight years ago now. And um, when, when you think about, I guess when you think about your mother's death and, and what it's been like to grieve her and how you think about her now and your relationship with her, well, just what are you what are you thinking about? I am always uh I'm always thinking about um the lessons she taught, you know. She was a teacher. So, you know, it's like when your teacher walks away from your desk and you're left facing a problem on your own. You try to remember uh, what she said, mm. how she told you step into the problem, how the challenge gets worse as it goes further along, and then your knowledge of how to solve it is strengthened uh, in the most difficult times. Um, my mother was also a strong, strong woman, and she always said, mourn me for a day and then live your life. You know, don't hold on to it. Oh, she would hate when people would just mourn and mourn and on and on, become so debilitated by the passing of someone else. She said, that's actually a disrespectful to the person that died. If you really love them and remember them, you move on with them. So I just think about small things. I was thinking about rubbing my mother's back one night before putting her to bed when she was ill. And uh, thought about how it was this one moment that I prayed with her. Uh, I think about how we laughed. I always think of my mother when I get stewed okra with shrimp, my favorite dish, and she would make it for me whenever I came home. Mm. Uh, and people say, stewed okra. I'm like, yeah, you from, you're not from New Orleans. If you were from New Orleans. You know how good it was. <laughs> Are you currently living alone in your place? Uh, yes. Yes, living alone. I have, uh, my girlfriend is in New York and she comes down. Uh-huh. When you talked about family being, you know, it's the connection to your past and it's also the connection to your future. And it, I wonder if... I can ask it before you ask it. Wait, what's what do you Why think? don't you have a family? No, I, I think you have a family. You have a family. Um, that's that's not the question. Uh, it's the question about choosing. I don't know if it was a choice, but being at this stage of life and and not having kids. How do you I, think I, about that? I, you know, I can still have kids, and uh, I have to I have to pull the trigger real fast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I uh, that is the one that is the one fear. I guess I, I can say that that's the one fear that's uh, debilitating to me. Uh, as much ammunition to fight the fights that I've been given, as much good fortune that my career has given me. Why am I still still so fearful to bring a child into this world? I always feel, I feel such guilt. Hmm. Such an overwhelming sense of guilt that a generation from now, there's some young man or woman going through the worst that life can bring them. And... It is because I brought them into this world. That just, I, I, I can just, I can just imagine myself seeing my child going through something that is so, so hurtful. And that debilitates me, man. Just, it makes me so fearful. I always admire people that, oh, Wendell, oh, my child, if you, if you, I said, yeah, man, that, and I think about it, and I go, that's, that's fleeting, because the child will then encounter the harshness of life. What they're reacting to is that pure innocence of this new, innocent life, experiencing everything new for the first time, knowing no fear, knowing no dread, knowing... Uh, None of the harshness. And um, and that is infectious. And sometimes I think that's selfish, you know? Yeah, that child is making you feel good. That mm-hmm. You have to bring a child into the world just to feel good about yourself. Oh, I think, though, man, that is really cynical when I even say it. I'm saying it for the first time. Um, and at the same time, God rest her soul. My mother would always say, oh, Wendell, if you only would trust and know there's no such joy as when you have a child, when you bring a child in the world. It is a joy that you, I can't describe to you and that it doesn't end uh, with childhood. I feel that with you to this day, and I just wish you would trust that. We had conversations about this. Hmm. You would always say, oh, by the time you have kids, you're going to be too old. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you won't be able to run around with them. And I said, yeah, but I'll be able to pay somebody to run around with them. <laughs> For you, it still feels, it, it feels like it's a, it's a question that you're thinking about, about whether you want to be a father. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think about that more than anything right now. Huh. See, I loved my mother so much, and I respect her opinion so much, and I trust her opinion so much that it's her voice that echoes in my head saying, oh, you do not know the joy you're missing out on of having a child. I also look at the math and say, listen, uh, you know, I got to get him to 21, so you know, I got to pull the trigger in the next year or two. <laughs> you know, so, uh, <laughs> oh, my God, you are, you are hearing... You are hearing the machinations in my head when I lay awake at night. So I will see. 
That's actor Wendell Pierce at home in New Orleans. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm usually based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Katie Bishop produced this episode. The rest of our team includes Annabelle Bacon, Afi Yellow Duke, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to Sam Garrett in Washington, D.C., who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Sam and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Do you think about a child taking care of you when you're older? Uh, No. Even though I'm giving my all to my father. Because with your siblings, there's always one who does the heavy lifting when caring for an elderly parent. And if you are one of the others, you're not doing enough. (laughs) And you know it. And that's the same with me. My brother, I can't get him. I'm not going to break on my brother. Yes, I am going to break on my brother. (laughs) You know, I'm doing all the heavy lifting. My brother's cool. I love him. He's great. But there's always one. So I always know that if I had the one, he may be like my brother. <laughs> <Cool. You know? laughs> so I'm not relying on any kids to take care of me when I'm home. Because those suckers will forget you in a minute. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.